When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Impact Theory Podcast, your source of empowering ideas and actionable techniques from the world's highest achievers. Join host Tom Bilyeu, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of the billion-dollar brand Quest Nutrition, on a journey to unlock your potential and realize your vision of success. Welcome to Impact Theory. I'm obsessed with learning. Yeah. And it's interesting because I've had the level of success that I've had and because I'm technically middle-aged, it's just crazy to say, uh, I used to be the kid, I swear to God. Uh, it is, it's really, there's a gravitational center in my brain that wants me to think that I have crossed some line yeah. and that it's about looking backwards and it's really dangerous. Like you have to be looking yeah. for, I mean, God willing, I've got, you know, another yeah. 40 plus years of yeah. life left. And every time that I get in that trap, it's, I just re-anchor around, whoa, I'm still learning. Like all this stuff, yeah. I'm 46, but I've learned so much. I failed so many yeah. times and I've acquired so much knowledge and skill set and all of that. And then you can think about, oh, cool. Like as long as I've got the energy yeah. to keep pushing, to keep building, because I have, to your earliest point about what makes you successful, it's the, that is literally my kryptonite, is I have a very hard time accepting the fact that I can do anything I want with my life, but not everything. Yeah. And that I find deeply distressing, yeah. but like on a level that borders on mental illness. Yeah. And by focusing cutting out the other stuff and recognizing okay i've reinvented myself again yeah but a lot of that knowledge is going to transfer it's going to be useful as i push forward but getting obsessed with learning yeah like that would be the gift if i could give to people and say okay you you want to be successful i get it everybody wants it right now but if you can stack these skills like then if you've got the skill set and the methodology Mm -hmm. that you know you and others can really lay out incredibly well. Yeah. It's like now you can do something. But if you have the methodology but not the skills yeah. or you don't have the mindset and so you're broken by the failure or you don't have the methodology, if you're missing any one of those, yeah. then you end up in a death spiral. Yeah. It's interesting what you're saying with the learning thing because um, I think a lot of people is like the early, because I, I also, I feel, like, I feel like two parts of the audience is that like follow my stuff. I've got the business owners who are mm-hmm. trying to scale their business, et cetera. And then I've got, all the people want to start a business and usually they're a little bit younger and whatnot. And I think there's a, a misnomer around like education. And so a lot of them, I don't know how explicit I can be, but like they mentally masturbate to watching lots and lots of videos. They, you know, want the pump up speeches. They buy the tickets to the things. Mm-hmm. And so they just learn. And I think that they think that exposure to information is learning. And I don't think that's true, or at least it hasn't been for me. That's so definitely not true. So, the, you know, because I'm sure you get asked all the time, like, what are the books that, you know, transform your life? Mm-hmm. And I've had a handful of books that have been useful to me, but I would say 99% of the things that I have learned, I've learned through doing. And so when 
I do the original rule of 100 and whatnot, it's because I think it's the most effective way to learn, which is you force yourself on the one controllable that you have, which is the activities that you can take. And then it goes with the underlying assumption that you go off feedback and you're like, well, that opening message did not work. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then I think most people have a dramatic underestimation of how much volume it takes to be successful, independent of the thing, right? They're like, okay, I should go on five dates and then find the girl I'm going to marry. Mm. Like, what if it was 500 to find the right girl you're going to marry? Or I want to, you know, start this, this new channel or I want to become an influencer or whatever it is. And they start doing, you know, one post a day for four weeks and they're like, why am I not famous yet? Mm. And they find, I mean, real, so right? true. And they find out that like, you know, we ended up doing 400 episodes before we made it to the top 10 on the podcast thing. And now we start doing, you know, 100 plus pieces of content a week. And it's just this volume game that you get the, the skill from the volume, the feedback from the volume. And you, there's all these like little things. I'm sure it's like from the exercise world because you come from that. Um, like when you squat, the first time you squat, you're, you're orienting yourself to your environment. You're barely actually squatting. You're just looking like you have a bar on your back. But you learn so much between that first rep and your 10,000th rep of squats. And so I think for most people, it's like if we can, if I, my goal, like with the learning is like, if I can just decrease the action threshold for people to begin and be okay with the fact that they're going to suck and it is okay to suck, it is, you should expect to suck. And it would be unreasonable for you to be good if you haven't done it before. Mm. And so it's like, are you asking the universe to be unreasonable for you by expecting to be good on your first try? And I think that's where a lot of people, it's the expectation that destroys their ability to be successful because they expect to win yeah. on the first shot and no one does. Do you worry at all about people wanting to be on camera right from the jump? Because oh. that puts an expectation to be good that, yeah. oh, yeah, that's rough. Um, I think it's so much e like if we're so, so many, so many feelings about this. Um, so you've got you've got this whole space, right? And you look at like, if you're like, I want to be a business influencer, right? Well, it's like, well, you look at the guys who are actually the top of the business game and virtually everyone, you, Andy, Ed, Gary, all those guys have killed it in business. And most of them, even Gary, had gone to 60 million a year before he made his first content. And so I think the issue is that people look at that and say, I should make content like them when you don't have, you can't answer the underlying question, which is why should I listen to you? Right. Which is always in the back of every audience's mind, in my opinion. At least that's what I think. Like when someone's like a relationship expert and I find out they've been divorced three times, I'm like, eh, you know, maybe not, right? Yeah. I mean, and as terrible as it is, they might be giving amazing advice, but it doesn't pass the first filter, which is if I'm going to take military strategy from someone, I'd rather have a general that has a winning record. Even if the other guy, Napoleon said, I'd rather have lucky generals. So even if he had two that were even, he'd rather have the lucky one. And so to the same degree, I think people use that filter because it actually takes less effort to learn from someone that you trust. Mm. And so it's like, if you've got the, the basement teacher that's telling you to dollar cost average into the S&P, and you've got Warren Buffett who's telling people to dollar cost average in the S&P, they don't want to listen to the teacher, even if the teacher is better objectively from a constant standpoint, because they just don't know if they should trust them. So you have to have two filters. I'm hearing the thing. Should I trust the thing? With Warren, you can just plug into whatever he's saying and just take it as truth, which takes less effort. Yeah. And so I think most people don't get that point. And so I think you should make content, but the, if you're, or you should advertise the stuff that you sell, let people know about what you're doing. Um, but it should be about the true expertise that you have, which is oftentimes just talking about the stuff you're doing rather than saying, you should be doing this. This is what I am doing. Hope you find it interesting. Hope you find it valuable. And I think that's a big dynamic, which at first is like how to, it's how I. Um, just that little shift. And I think a lot of people would get much 
bigger, better audiences and actually make more money from the content that they're making because everyone else is like, why should I listen to you? Yeah. Yeah. With content, like I'm, I'm open. Anybody that wants to make it, make it. People will yeah. watch it if it's adding value. Hopefully yeah. they don't do what you were describing earlier, which I'll call spiritual entertainment, where they're just learning, 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 watching, 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 getting motivated, yeah. getting inspired. They're not doing anything with it. But my big concern with people creating content is yeah. that they will trap themselves because they're afraid to suck. Like when I got yeah. on camera, I was like, wow, I'm really rolling the dice now because my life has taught me one immutable truth. I'm going to fail a lot. And there's nothing that tells me that that period in my life is over. Like, and and yeah. it was never interesting to me to yeah. like ride into the sunset on, oh, I sold Quest. Yeah. So I sold Quest and then like fucking Babe Ruth, I said, I'm gonna build the next Disney, right? Yeah. But I went on camera and said, look, honestly, the odds are stacked against me. The odds that I fail are way higher than yes. I, that I succeed, right? Yeah. And so going into that, I did not want to back myself into a corner yeah. where I was afraid to try things. I was yeah. afraid to step into an area where I wasn't good because it's the only way that I know to get better, right? Yeah. Which I call the physics of progress. Yeah. I call it the physics for a reason because I think it is truly the only way to improve yeah. is basically the scientific method. You yeah. come up with an informed hypothesis, exactly. come up with a test that lets you actually try that out. Yeah. You test it. You get results, yeah. you stare nakedly at those results, which will sting a little because it almost yeah. certainly did not work as well as you hoped. Yeah. You will then get a little bit wiser. You will reformulate a hypothesis. Yeah. You will retest and you just, that's the loop, right? And you yeah. just go, go, go. And you see what works and you see what doesn't. But people are so interested in looking cool yeah. that the content becomes the trap that stops them from actually right. getting good. It's the posturing. It's the external validation that they need to feel like the success they're not having in reality can be made up for with likes and comments and mm. perceived success. Talk to me about the, so you said that you wanted to vanquish your dad. Yeah. So this to me is tied to that idea of like, you, you need something that propels yeah. you. You need something that pushes you yeah. to go through all of this, but also trying, letting your dad control your actions is probably not the best move yeah so like how, how is it useful and then is there getting to the other side of that yeah so um and you know to be clear dad uh, <laughs> the i would say that the the vanquishing thing is something that i was able to kind of recognize in retrospect which was it was all about beating my dad earlier on so and a lot of that was because i felt like a lot of the respect was withheld from me earlier on and it was always like a moving target which is you know you need to be this you need to be that you have to be in shape you have to date hot girls you have to be top of your class you have to play all the varsity sports you, like all those things right be editor-in-chief of the newspaper be editor-in-chief of the of the literary magazine all those things at the same time and still if i got something wrong on a test it was like what'd you get wrong you know rather than this is cool i'm not got you know, 99 right yeah i'm not boohooing about it. it is what it is it's made me who i am and i'm grateful for it um, but that was kind of the, the earlier part was I wanted to win at the game that had been set up for me. And, you know, first it was make a hundred thousand a year. And then it was make, uh, the same amount, amount as my dad. And then it was make more than my dad. And then it was make more than my dad had ever made in his entire life. Mm -hmm. And then once that happened, I looked around and I was like, I think I've been playing his game and not my game. And so I wasn't really setting any rules. I was just playing with the rules that were given to me. And so and kind of thing like, is this even the game I want to play? And so that, you know, that took me, you know, a little bit of time to process. Um, and I think that it ultimately, to your question, I think it did serve me a lot. Um, and I don't know how much of these reinforced behaviors that I learned during that period of time still benefit me today, but they're not fueled by the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I still have these habits of how I work and, 
and you know being dedicated towards goals, et cetera, that I think we're born of that. Um, but no longer are fueled from that now. So how do we effectively take control of the process of rewarding and punishing ourselves yeah. to keep us on track towards our goals? I think being cognizant of it at, at, at the absolute base layer, you start to see the world through very different lens. And you're like, okay, that was punishing. Huh? Like that was rewarding. Great. I'll do more of that. But then you start to think, you're like, why do I do that? And you really start thinking about it. You're like, well, because I, it sometimes it's so funny. Like I'll have, um, cause we, you know, we, 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 invest in buying products and whatnot. And so I had two different products that were in the same category because I liked the category that I was looking at. And one of the products had a better result. Like it had a better better end outcome when the, when the customer uses it. And the market leader, and this is who they were trying to disrupt, um, had a slightly inferior result, um, but it delivered the result almost instantly. Mm. And the other one took like five minutes. And this one was like five seconds. And the other one was objectively better. Like even like science, like science, it had all the stats and everything. Like it was objectively better. And they wanted me to invest in this company. And um, they're like, we have a better product. I was like, no, you have a better result. You have a better product. The reason these guys are still number one is because uh, latency matters more than intensity when it comes to reward. The reason that a little icon on your phone is because it's immediate, right? And then it goes away, right? Like you have this immediate feedback loop. Whereas, um, you, I don't know if you've heard this. Okay, so um, sorry, I, I love this stuff. So. If you're trying to train a dog, right? They uh, there's this. Uh, I wish I could. I'll maybe send it after the show, but like a graph that shows how you can train a dog to sit or with like a treat. And so, if you tell the dog the command, and then you wait and you immediately reward it, it learns faster. If you wait 30 seconds, it learns. You know, it takes more tries to get it to learn. After a minute, the dog's untrainable. A minute. And so it doesn't know why it's being rewarded. Now, the thing is, is it's not that you aren't training the dog, because whenever you have some sort of reward, you're training it, you're just not training what you think you are. So you have to look at what happened immediately before you give the reward, which happened a minute later, right? And so we think, because it's like, it sat, I'm going to wait a minute and then give it the cookie, but I'm not reinforcing the sitting, I'm reinforcing the thing they did right before they got the cookie. And so as a, as a, as a, as a zoom back out here, um, when we're thinking about, like, and the reason I brought up these two products was that the 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 original product the one that was the the market leader was better because it gave even a smaller benefit but it gave it immediately and so people will probably it, it seems silly but when you really try and be honest with yourself like why do i why do i go to this gym instead of that gym because i have a bunch of gym memberships I'm like why do i because i like to think about this i'm, I'm like, not surprised by that right? i'm like why do i go to this place i'm like because the other place has better equipment and i'm like the person at the front always says hi when i walk in immediate reinforcement for walking in the door. And I was like, I think that's what it is. So I like it. Like when I come in, they always say hi. And I have like a two minute conversation. And like, I look forward to that. I drive 10 minutes further for that. And I'm like, how silly. But when I think about it, when I'm really honest with myself, and so to go back to the person who's on the couch, it's sometimes the rewards are minuscule. And then when you name them, they feel a little bit less powerful. But it also means that you can say, how can I make another minuscule reward in another direction? that gets me moving towards my long-term goal. And then I can kickstart that cycle where I start to learn like a master does because masters enjoy, love the process. It's like easy for a master to say, cause you're fucking good at it. Easy for you to say, right? Like when you're, you know, if I'm right, like I write my 19th draft of the book, I've now written a decent amount. You know what I mean? Like I've, I've spent a long time writing. And so I, the act of writing itself is rewarding for me. Like you must work so hard, which I do, but 
it's not that I'm willpowering my way the whole way through. Not always. Of course, there's times where it's like not the most fun, but big picture, the process is rewarding because I've gotten good enough that it is rewarding. And so um, the more ways you measure, the more ways you can win, which is like one of our one of our little monikers. And so it's like, how many different ways can we measure so that we can make progress on these little things and have wins as quickly as possible in the direction you're trying to go and then start the loop. Okay. So um, to say that really succinctly to make sure I understand, no, 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 the exploration was amazing. I just want to make sure that I understand it. Um, I think we've covered the reward part. So I'm going to do something measurable and see my growth. And that starts a positive reinforcement loop that's going to send me down the right path. Yeah. Okay. So that makes all the sense in the world. Uh, proximity, the rate at which you get the reward is really going to matter. That's yeah. really interesting from a product perspective. You're the first person I've ever heard oh, talk yeah. about that. Super interesting. But now how do I punish myself? Do I, like, I'm a big believer that you need to punish yourself. But when I say that sentence out loud, I know what people hear and it yeah. feels icky and weird, yeah. um, but it's been incredibly powerful for me. So do you believe in the power of self-punishment? Yeah. And if you do, how far do we take it so um i will just uh, just for sake of everyone i will just state this as my opinion and we'll just leave it at that so you have praise and you have punishment or you can have reward and you have punishment whatever you want to call it punishment is more effective to change behavior in the short term like if i hold a gun to somebody's head i can immediately change the behavior right reward is more powerful over the long term and so like, if you look at an environment, so we think we talk a lot about this at acquisition.com because it's kind of part of our mission internally is to create a culture of reward, not punishment. Uh, and the way that we think about this is if you have like, let's say Goldman Sachs or McKinsey, some of these very big organizations that attract some of the best and brightest and are renowned for having relatively terrible or punishing cultures, right? They work people to death and blah, blah, blah. So what happens is if you, if you put an animal in a cage, and uh, they can't escape, then they will revert to the law of least effort. So they will do as little as they can to not get punished. And so then when you're in a punishing environment, you all you have to do to get them to do more is you just raise the bar for what they have to law of least effort do to not get punished. And so in an environment of high performers, that gets everyone to raise the bar, but then quickly burn out. Now that model works if you have an endless supply of bodies. But if you are the person who is being burnt out, then that works for two years or whatever. Praise, on the other hand, or reward can unlock, in my opinion, discretionary effort. So the effort beyond the law of least effort required to keep your job and not get punished. And so the issue is that the people who are the most able are the ones who are able to work the least and still keep their jobs. But they're also the ones who you get the absolute most upside on if they work because they want to not because they have to. And so that is kind of our, our, our thesis of how we try and build companies at acquisition.com. And we're not perfect. We, you know, believe me, there are plenty of times when I want to chew someone's head off, but we really try. I know my teams are nodding, but like, we really put serious effort into saying like it. So if let's say like I find out the dog shits on the, on the carpet, when I get home, I hit it. It doesn't learn. All I'm doing is hitting a dog. Like if it was less than, if it was within 60 seconds from the time that it happened, it's not going to learn. And so like, if you know that, and then you hit the dog anyways, what does that make you? Interesting. Right. And so, um, 
Now, obviously, if we're like punishing ourselves and whatnot, um, that might be somewhat different. I'm talking about how we relate to others. Um, but you can either avoid punishment or you can seek reward. And I think both of them are powerful uh, motivators. Avoiding punishment is powerful, more powerful in the short term to change behavior. It's faster. Uh, reward is more powerful in the long term to keep behavior going. Because eventually you, uh, like kind of like hedonic adaptation, you get used to a punishment and then it no longer works. So you have to have, you have to increase the variety and intensity of punishments in order for it to continue to be effective. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're going to have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. 
Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need and Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. Do you punish yourself? Honestly, not a ton. I have super high standards. I don't know if I punish myself. I don't know if I'm like, Alex, you're a piece of shit. I don't, not really. Because I, you know, Layla and I are kind of sit on opposite sides of the, like, I'm like, some people have like a base of anxiety that they like work through. I don't come from that side. I come from probably like a base of laziness. Like, and just, you know, like, and that's why I have, have all these things to get myself to do, <laughs> to do stuff. Um, but punishment just like, it's also just never been effective for me. Like when I get punished, I, I want to just figure out how to avoid punishment, not do what they want me to do. Right. Like when you, when you use punishment to like train a kid, you get them to sneak out. <laughs> more right um not like they just find other ways to get out of the house quietly they don't necessarily change the behavior but if you reward them for staying then they never want to leave that kind of idea the reason people leave when they're younger is because there's more reward outside of the house than inside the house and so if you want to fix it in the long term make the reward for being home more than leaving home it's interesting so uh this is probably one where defining the term would be very meaningful um I, I personally use what I call self-punishment. Yeah. Now, to me, self-punishment is to force myself to acknowledge that I said I was going to do something that I did not do. That's oh. normally where okay. this will come from. Interesting. Me. I would call that stating the facts. Interesting. I would call that punishing. So, oh, and this, this, is, this so, is why this is it's great. important. This so <laughs> I understand why people always react so negatively when yeah. I say that you, you are missing out on an incredibly powerful tool yeah. uh, if you don't punish yourself. Now, just to acknowledge, and you've said this oh, as well, yeah. we, we are all speaking from, this is what works with me. Yeah. Um, so this is the experience that I've Let's had. The comment section. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and there, so getting out of bed in 10 minutes or less is, sure. I, I struggle with it every day of my life. It's, it's, hysterical to me that even now all these years later yeah. i still have to be like you said you'd get out i stay in bed for like 45 minutes on my phone. i can't allow myself immediately to. as soon as i wake well, up well if I, i'm I doing something in bed <laughs> I, I suppose i should change it to working um that i have 10 minutes to be productive is probably okay. the right way to think okay. about it um and because there are times where there's something that i can do in bed like this morning when i could start researching you the okay. second i wake up then then i would still call that a win but if i don't yeah. do the thing that i said i was going to do then i force myself to to acknowledge to myself with no i don't let myself run yeah. so i don't let myself be distracted i'm just like you said you were going to do yes. something you did not do this thing yes. and therefore you should not feel good about the behaviors that you enacted okay. in this moment okay and then i will often confess to my wife or my employees or my community so that i am holding myself accountable and now i'm sitting in something that i do not like the way that it feels I'm not letting myself run. And so then I'm like, I don't want to be back here. Yeah. So next time I'm going to take a different set of behaviors. 
that has been transformative for me. So interesting. And that not using that for me yeah, yeah. would be to miss out on a huge motivational thing. I love this. And I want to draw similarities for the audience. Cause and I think I think this, this is why I think this stuff's kind of interesting for anybody who's listening, is like, is there are different ways. This is why like there, there are only a few things you need to do to win. And the way you do it is entirely up to you. Uh, which is why I love boiling things down to just like, what are the few the few things that everything has in common and everything else is preference. But with what you just said, I think I have like, the first thing we do is we state the facts is that I said that I would wake up within and do something within 10 minutes. Observation, that did not happen. Then comes the third step, which is that you, um, this is me putting words, okay. is that you label that as bad. And then maybe label yourself as bad, depending on, you know. That how, I don't do. Right, yeah, for the for the audience, just to be clear. Um, okay, I need to not see you. So one, so if, if one wakes, you know, doesn't wake up in 10 minutes and then states the facts, I did not do what I said I was going to do. Um, then uh, labels the, the thing as not good and then says, I am also not good, then that becomes trouble. Now, one degree before that is just labeling the behavior as not good or not ideal for the outcome that I want. Um, but I'm not sure how much it matters to feel bad about it. Again, with the behavior box of like stimulus response, because once you feel bad about it, right? And then it's like, well, what, what do we do to increase the likelihood that next time it increases? Now, because we could feel amazing about it, we can feel terrible about it, we can feel neutral about it, but all that will matter is what behavior we change in order to increase the likelihood that we do what we want next time at least as, as, as I see it. And I found that I put, for me, a lot of energy into trying to understand things, trying to label things as good or bad, trying to label myself as good or bad as a consequence. Um, and the only part that mattered for me to actually get what I wanted was the last step, which is what am I gonna do about it? And I can also just skip these. <laughs> I can just skip these other three steps and just go straight from, I always said I was gonna do this thing, observation, I did not do it, what is the change in my behavior or my environment that I'm going to do next time to increase the likelihood that I do it? And then even with the binary thing that we were talking about earlier with rules, I'm actually more of like a weighing system of, okay, over the last 60 days, I got up within the first 10 minutes, 60% of the time. Okay. Next 60 days, if I can do 70% of the time, I am making progress. And so rather like, because most people will fall short of perfection. And so I feel like it ends up setting up a an inevitability of failure if we define it as binary. Just my own perspective. Mm. So how do you then deal with people that are not hitting a standard, whether it's you or somebody else? I yeah. have found in business, if you let people get away with low standards, yeah. uh, not only will it devastate their performance, it will begin to drag down the company totally. and, and it really matters. Totally. So um, do you stick to only rewards? Do you call it yeah. out? Like, what do you do? Yeah, yeah. so we absolutely, we state the facts and then we say what we're going to do about it. And then if someone consistently cannot do, because at, at some level, there's always, there's always a chunk down skill someone doesn't have, right? So if I say, hey, can you send an email to so-and-so? We have assumption that they have a stack of skills before that. I assume that they can read. I assume they can write. I assume they can use a computer. I assume they have, from an envir environmental perspective, they have access to internet. They know how to use a word processor. Like they know how to open up an internet route. Like I know we're, this sounds silly, but we make these assumptions. But for some people, they're missing one of those. 
And so they have all this failure because they're just missing one link on that chain. And so trying to identify what is the skill deficit? And then is it a skill that I'm willing to invest time into teaching somebody? And so we want somebody who have as many base skills as possible that apply to many scenarios. So like if two people go through the same training program, right? And one person gets the outcome and the other person doesn't, it's usually because the training program doesn't account for every single skill that is required to get the outcome. There are certain assumptions that come in. Like if someone reads my book, I assume that they can speak English. I mean, I'm saying as simple as that sounds, right? But there's a hundred other skills and the people who are successful faster just have more of those skills stacked up so that when they get the right information, they can immediately use it. And some people still need to go back and learn how to wake up on time and like have someone say no and not cry, right? Like these are, these are other skills. And so um, in the environment of work, how do we address somebody who is not performing? We state the facts, we recommend a course of action that can help increase the likelihood that they do it again in the future. And if that doesn't happen, then we say like, this is what will happen as a consequence, neutral of you being good or bad, or this situation be good or bad. It's just, these are the standards that we will accept. And you are beneath those standards based on these facts. That's it. Like if you showed up to work late, okay. Just to be clear, you understand that our expectation is that you show up on time. Yes, I understand. Great. You also understand that that what you did was not to that expectation. Cool. So let's do this. Do you have an alarm on your phone? Yes. Do you use it? No. Do you know how to set an alarm on your phone? Yes. Great. So why don't we do this from here on out? Let's set two alarms, five minutes apart at this time. That'll give you ample time to get up, clean your face, whatever, and then get on camera. Does that work? Yes. And then we measure. And if it doesn't happen again, if it does, then it's like, why did that? Because then you get into the base skill being, do I adhere to authority? Like, can I listen to instructions? Like those are skills. And if someone nods their head and then doesn't do that, then they don't have that skill. And then the question is whether am I, am, am I willing to take the time to invest in teaching someone this skill when the opportunity cost of that time could be allocated to somebody else who might already have that skill or suite of skills. That's how we think about it. So one of the things that is a recurring theme is the idea of extending the time to extinguish. What, if we were going to operationalize that, mm -hmm. what, what do we do with people? And um, if I were going to personify the, the length to extinguish, I'll give a yeah. historical example and then I'll give a, a more modern. So historically, uh, Winston Churchill, dude, I don't know if you've read much about him, unbelievable uh, what that guy was able to pull off and how long he was able to delay gratification. Yeah. And then a more modern example would be a David Goggins. Yeah. So um, how do we operationalize it? What do you take from those guys? I think it's the, the, the master's thesis of those guys are masters at whatever the thing is. And so they find ways to reward themselves in the meantime. And so we only think that they have supreme ultra discipline willpower because we are measuring what we can see as the outcome of running a race, you know, 26 miles or whatever it is. But if they are rewarding themselves throughout the entire process, then if anything, the end of the race might be uh, a removing of a reward and might be actually anticlimactic, which is what happens with most athletes after they compete in the Olympics or they win the championship or lose the championship. Um, the buildup is where they have all the reinforcement. And then when that thing actually happens, then they have to get right back on the, the horse of where they get their reward from, which is the work to get there because they are good enough at it that they can win in more ways. Mm -hmm. And so just the more you know about something, the better you are at it, the better you are at it, the more you can win, the more you can win, the more you want to do it. How much of that do you think is identity? Like when I look at somebody yeah. like, um, 
a Churchill or a Goggins, it that feels to me like a game of who am I or who do I want to be? Mm-hmm. One of my favorite Churchill quotes um, is, well, so quotes, failure is the ability to go from, uh, sorry, success is the ability to go from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm speaks directly to this. Yeah. But one thing that I got reading his biography is uh, he said to his mother when he was really young that uh, this is a paraphrase, not exact quote, but I yearn for a reputation for physical courage um, more than anything. I mean, it was, and and this is a guy that, for people that don't, don't know his story, that sent himself into war zones multiple times in his life when he absolutely did not need to do that, including World War One, when he was, like, he was basically the equivalent, the British equivalent of a senator. Yeah. Now imagine you have an active senator who felt like he had let people down. And so he said, send me to the front lines. And they're like, whoa, why would we do that? Like you do not need to go to the front lines. Even if you want to engage with the war, you certainly don't need to go to the front lines. And he said, nope, I want to be literally where the bombs are falling in the dirt with the men. Um, And that was somebody who had such a strong internal compass of, this is who I want to be or yeah. how men ought to be. Um, same idea with Goggins, right? Just felt like I'm a loser. He's yeah. staring at himself in the mirror, the accountability mirror, doesn't like who he sees, decides he's going to change and become a different person. And I'm sure you've seen the clips of him screaming, you don't know me. Yeah. You don't know who I am. Um, that's an identity play. Mm-hmm. So how do you see that? Is is ex- extending the time to extinguish purely an, an an identity play or is there something else going on so i think uh, i think the wording matters um but if you uh want to extend how long you continue to do something without seeing the result of your doing uh you need to find a way to be rewarded in the meantime like that's that's what it is like that in my opinion and so whether we call it identity or we call it a skill or we call it a behavior or we call it a character trait so it's saying like with the, the the many words that ultimately mean like what is the percentage likelihood that this behavior occurs um that is really all i would look at and is it as simple as i i was today who i said i was like how do we make that I mean, not to beat to death the idea of operationalize, but when I think about what I'm doing when I reward and punish myself is I am trying to feel the way I want to feel or not, or make sure that I'm feeling discomfort so that I will move away from that behavior. Yeah. So what is it or how do we leverage identity to feel the thing that we want to feel like? Is it just words in your head? Like, how do you play that game? Identity is really internal culture. So if you think, if you define culture as uh, a set of rules of behavior, in a, within an organization, identity is just the rules of behavior within an individual. And so I think to your point, you have your rules of behavior, um, that occur. I would say that my rules of behavior, even though I hate rules as a concept, um, when I do these things, like when I see this, this happens, right? I do have the, these, these behaviors that have been cued that I have learned. Um, see now we have all these words that we've defined. So now we can, at least everybody can agree on what we're talking about, which is why it means a lot to me. Um, but yeah, I just, I think identity is just a big stack of behavioral cues that we've set because people change over time. And so it's really just like a mental construct of this is how I behave. Like what is an identity? It is like, and even if you want to say like, I know this person, what it really means is that I have a high predictive score on what this person will do or say as a result of whatever I do or say. And so 
if that's the conversation that I'm having with someone, it's like, oh, I know him really well. Oh, he'll love that because I have a good predictive score that when this happens, he will do this. Now, somebody who's all over the place or super erratic, right? Then are, do they have a, a unformed identity or do I just not know enough about them? Maybe. And so I, it just, that has just been my litmus test. And maybe, maybe it seems like oversimplification, but um, for me, it has been incredibly fruitful to just, because then it, for me, it takes a lot of the, the superstition, a lot of the magic, a lot of the black box of feelings and emotions and, and identity out. And it's just, Alex is a series of behaviors. That's who I am, that, I, that have been trained into me by my environment and that I have tried to learn myself. And I will change in the future because if I get better, then it means I can't be the same person I am today, which means some of the things that I have learned now, I will unlearn and learn new behaviors when I see a different stimulus or the same, sorry, when I see the same stimulus. It's so interesting. So um, the way that I have always approached this is I, I am trying to get people to change their frame of reference. Frame of reference, Love speaking this. of things that need to be defined, mm -hmm. frame of reference to me are your beliefs and values. Oh, okay. And See, they, I didn't even think that's what you meant. Yeah. I thought, I totally thought you meant something different. So this is why I would- the, Yes, exactly. Yeah. This is why you define things. Okay. So, um, and, and I will say all of this in what I just heard you say is that where I'm coming at things is from beliefs and values, where you're coming at things is from behaviors and traits. It's very interesting, very interesting. Like I am gonna think about this so much <laughs> moving forward uh, as to one, is it, is beliefs and values just particular to me? And that is I try to help people make change in their life. Yeah. I'm wasting all my fucking time because this is just yeah. the thing that resonates with me. Or yeah. is there something, I'm yeah. getting to the thing that's underneath your behaviors and traits and that if people don't address this, they'll never get to that. Or I'm just wasting my time. Yeah. You were gonna say something, I think it's- Well, value. So if we were to like, when it's like, I have these values, a value is just a behavioral short code. When this happens, I do this. Someone who is loyal, when he's out and his wife isn't there, hot girl comes up and says, hey, wanna get a drink? Value, it means set of behaviors, I say no, or I say I'm married, or no thank you, whatever. And so values are skills because you can train them. And That's interesting, values are skills. I would say the adherence to a value is a skill that you can train, but if you have the wrong value that you adhere to, you're gonna be in trouble. Here's why I start with beliefs and values. I think yeah. so much of the human animal is invisible yeah. to the person and that if they, they'll never be able to control their behaviors if they don't control the emotions that drive the behaviors. And I think emotions are an echo of your beliefs and values. And I can change somebody's emotion, like their cognitive, um, the way that they frame something cognitively will drive their biological response to that moment, which is insane. So mm -hmm. the quote, nothing is either good or bad, yeah. but thinking makes it so. Yes. The death of your mother is not good or bad. Totally. Thinking it's yeah. bad makes it bad. Yeah. Now that is, uh, you and I think come at that from very different angles. Totally. And so- Not that a is, bad way, I think it's great. No, 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 yeah. dude, this is so intriguing to me. <laughs> One, because all I care yeah, yeah. about is are you getting the outcome that you want, yes or no? And if yeah. you are, amazing. And so you're giving me new tools, new ways to think about this. Um, okay, so just a quick yeah. breakdown of, of frame of reference. So my hypothesis is that everybody's life is entirely controlled by their frame of reference. Okay. The frame of reference, the best analogy yeah. would be to say that your frame of reference is a pair of glasses that you put on sure. that distort the living sure. shit 
of mm -hmm. the world that none of us mm -hmm. have the um, option of taking the glasses off. Taking the glasses off would be to exist outside of your biology. Okay. Nobody's gonna be able to do that. Yeah. So you see the world in a hyper distorted way. Mm -hmm. Now, all of us over a lifetime of reward, punishment, um, oh God, what'd you call it? Approval. Like there's all yeah. kinds of things attention, that happen to you. Approval. Yeah. Attention, affection, affection approval. approval. Okay. So all of us are getting that constantly from the time that we are born until now. And we choose who to value that from. And you've talked about your parents yeah. and all that. Like, so anyway, you can choose, but you, most people never become consciously aware of what's happening. And so they're, the distortion of their lens happens slowly over time in ways that they simply recognize mistakenly as objective truth. Sure. So they think they see the world as it is, mm -hmm. not through the yeah. warped lenses of their frame of reference. Now, once you realize that you can change the way the lenses warp the world, now you can start to shape your lenses based on um, action outcome. Yeah. I did a thing and it had this outcome. And yeah. so it all becomes about your ability to predict the outcome of your actions, which is, yeah. uh, and we will get into sort of the physics of making money. But um, to me, that's all about yeah. the ability to predict like what tests to run and how to yeah. interpret the tests and all that. So it ultimately boils down to your frame of reference. And if you don't get your frame of reference right, the world will be so warped, you will not be able to predict the outcome of your behaviors. Most people end up in the mistaken loop of my emotions are the, the correct, which one needs to define and they right. don't. My emotions are the correct response to this stimulus, even though it does not lead me towards my goals. And they spend their whole life spiraling in emotion. And that's yeah. why they're never able to get out of it and, and begin yeah. to polish the lens in a way that actually gives them um, something useful. And what you're saying is none of that fucking matters. All that matters is whether they do the thing that's going to yield the outcome or not. I think it, it just, I think it just saves a lot of time and a lot of, because when we try to name these emotions, like, you know, what am I feeling? I'm kind of, it's like this whole conversation of not this, but like mm -hmm. that self-conversation, it's like, what does that accomplish until you then decide to do something in the real world? Like nothing matters. And from a, from an outcome perspective, but I'll just share something with the audience because I have a, my, my first really big viral video was me just talking about like what, how you scale companies. And I, first thing I talk about is scaling the entrepreneur. Um, and I have four frames that I go through in the in the video. And I used to believe that uh, entrepreneurs get limited by skills, but this is this is what I used to believe, which is skills, uh, character traits, and beliefs. Those are that's what I used to say. I now believe that character traits are another way of saying when this happens, they do this, which is trainable, which makes it a skill. And then beliefs are when they are presented with this information, they then make this decision, which is yet again, another thing that can be trained because if you can learn it then it's a skill, which means it just comes down as I see the world, it just comes down to skills. And just because it's harder to define, uh, charisma, because it might be 20 things. Cause we have a term that buckets 50 behaviors or whatever it is, just because it's harder to describe, doesn't make it not a skill. And that's why like the soft stuff in business, like we probably agree that the soft stuff matters a ton in building a big company, the culture, right? McKinsey did a big study on this. Layla cites it a lot more than I do because she's usually on the, on the people side. Um, but uh, in a normal business, two out of three strategies fail, like new initiatives fail. In businesses where they have the soft stuff down, one out of three strategies fail. So two out of three succeed. So you get twice the percentage likelihood of success on big strategic initiatives. Do you ever guess why? 
why is beyond is beyond me i that that was just that was the yeah, yeah i don't get into like, because I don't care about that yeah i don't get into because it's right this is that yeah dr cash is my my closest friend like a brother he jokes about it. he he obsesses about why things work i just care that it works <laughs> um and so um anyways to, to circle back on this is that people consider like leadership to be like a foo-foo or like communication skills is like soft stuff, right? Sales, metric, you know, like we have all these metrics driven things versus this. And it's just because it's harder to measure doesn't make it less important. And that was, that was a big realization for me is that it was just because it was harder for me to measure, but it doesn't make it less important. And so these skills that we're talking about, um, we try to find ways to measure them by saying when I'm, when somebody walks, like, I'll give you an example with our video team. Um, we realized that we have much better direct camera work for our content. If, cause we were, we were like, man, we have this one guy on our team. He's so good to film with. And some of the other guys are just like, not as good. I'm not like as amped about it. Like, why is that? So we could control all the things that we we're going to walk into the, into the video session with like, okay, am I, did I sleep well? Did I, you know, all that stuff. If that's controlled and I still change, then it means there's something in the environment. And so we then observed, actually, to be fair, we asked the, the superstar to observe, what are the things you're doing? And so we noticed that while he's, while he's filming, he's like, yeah, he's like, yes, this is awesome. And so we said, write that down. And then what else do you do? It's like, oh, I, uh, I write down questions while you're talking, while I'm, so he had to be able to multitask. So he had to bob his head while we're talking and write down follow-up questions for what we were saying. And so then all of a sudden it became this continuous flow of consciousness with literally constant reinforcement while we were filming visually. Mm. And so then we gave that SOP to the other people on the team and all of a sudden filming with them was way better. And so people were like, he's just got a great vibe. It just means that we don't know how to describe all the little behaviors that that person does and, and say, when I start talking, nod your head. Real, right? And when, when there's something that you don't understand, write it down and ask me because I mean, somebody else doesn't understand it too. And it makes for great content. Oh, right. And so we had this big list and then now we operationalized what it's like or what, what, you, what behaviors you have to do to become somebody who's good behind the camera, which means it's a skill that can be learned like charisma, like patience, like confidence, like whatever. And so, um, Boiling it down that way has just demystified the world for me and just made it a lot easier to navigate because I don't have to spend 90% of my time trying to figure out why I'm doing whatever I'm doing. All I care about is whether I do what I need to do to get the outcome. And if I do the thing and I don't get the outcome, that means there's another variable that I haven't controlled or I don't understand. And if, you know, in the words of B.F. Skinner, um, if many variables are present, many variables must be studied. So sometimes we want to oversimplify it, but like there might be 10 cues in the environment that create a banger session. But if we have nine, is it better than the last one that had three? Probably. And so then we just make progress in that way. Okay. So this is your superpower. This is the thing that, dude, I just look at you in awe. This It's really, really incredible what you do. And I am so grateful to live on the timeline where the internet exists and someone like you with this insane ability comes out and just creates all this content. Um, you know, I am as obsessed with learning as you are. And so, um, yeah, it's just in incredible. And to never stop learning is, is the great gift of being a yeah. human. Okay. So the thing that I think that you're just unreasonably good at is taking a very complex problem that maybe I'm spending too much time in the why is this happening? And you're just skipping past that and you're going, okay, I'm going to break it down into these, do this, when this happens, do this, when that happens, do that. Um, I'm going to try to get to the physics of business through sure. a weird 
question, right. but keep in mind for anybody watching that's that doesn't know my story, I, I've been in the world of entrepreneurship for over 20 years. I've had some pretty incredible success. So this is a this is a well-educated question from yeah. I've been in this for a long time. So it's going to seem like a weird angle to attack it. This is for the audience more than you. Um, hang with me because if we really can dissect this, I think it will help people understand the magic thing that you do. You rewrote your book completely four times. Mm -hmm. Something happened when you read it the first time, the first time that you realized I have to start over completely. Yeah. That thing, whatever that was, I promise you, I have the chills just thinking about it. That is the thing that makes you good at business. And so I need to understand what abstract, use the book as an example, sure. but I, I want people to understand this is an abstracted version of something very important, which is you were able, you did a thing. Yeah. I'm guessing you had to do the thing in order to find the part that wasn't right. Yeah. But you were able to then identify that part, reconceptualize, get more intelligent as you did it again. It's what I call the physics of progress. Yeah. But like what your ability to learn and break into constituent parts is, is the thing certainly I want to learn from. So when you reread what yeah. you first wrote, what clicked? Do you remember? Well, I got feedback. So I sent the first, which was really the first draft that I ended up sending to people was v9 um of the book had you rewritten it all yeah. over yeah. how many times have you rewritten oh, sorry. By then? so that was like i had gone through i mean i start back at the top i re-edit everything again start back at the top without feedback correct that's the one i want to know about okay the first time you read through the book and yeah. you're like ah i have to reconceive yeah. of the whole approach yeah what happened in that moment uh it wasn't clear or wasn't simple enough that's that's it like and um I like to use this example because it, it might make sense for a lot of the audience. If I were to say, edit a six, assume you know how to edit videos just for the, per, the simplicity. If I said, go edit this video, someone might edit it. And I say, get, you know, edit this video in 30 minutes. And they edit the short clip and they give it back to me. And I say, okay, if I give you two hours, what else would you do? And they're like, oh, well, I might do this. And I might do this. I might do this. I'm like, okay, go do that and come back. And they come back and I'm like, okay. If I give you two weeks for this 30 second clip, what else would you do? Like, oh, I might reimagine the entire thing and actually lay it out in this way. It would take way more time, but like, I think it would actually still be better. It's like, cool, do that. And they come back. And then when there's no more loose where I'm like, what else could you do to make this better? At that point, to me, the work is done. I have exhausted my level of skill and understanding. Like I can't make the leads book better at current. Now I'll bet you in a year, I'll think of some things that I could have used to make it better. But at present moment, there's nothing that I can think that I would either cut or add in or break down or add a visual for uh, or lower the reading level on uh, to make sure that everyone would understand it. And so whenever I have those, like, it's like a hangnail, you know what I mean? It's like this little splinter where I'm like, this could be better. Does it start with a feeling or with a fact? Um, it's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I think I read something and I think that wasn't as clear as it was in my, it's not as clear reading it as it is in my head. So what's the discrepancy? Like this term is confusing or this phrase doesn't make sense or I need to break this into a paragraph or whatever it is. Um, and honestly, it's just doing that. Like it took me, 
it's funny. I had this, this cover letter that I was going to include in every book. Um, and it was one page and I think I put, uh, 25 hours into the one page. Um, and it's, it's interesting because people hear that and they're like, that's crazy. I'm like, to me, 25 hours doesn't count as one unit of work yet. Um, think like, in hundreds. Dude, you got it. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, and so I ended up actually not using the cover letter, which is even more ironic. Um, but when my team saw how many iterations went through it, I was like, every single person will read this part. Now, chapter, you know, the last chapter in the book, maybe it's 20% or maybe it's 13% or whatever it is, we'll get to the last chapter. But the first page, every single person who reads the entire book will read that page. Every person who reads half the book will read that page. Every person who reads only the first chapter will read that page. And so it's like, if anything, I should put more time into that. But I approached just about every page of the book that way. It was just that my team was able to see it on one page publicly. And so that's, we, we wrote, my editor and I, Dr. Kashi, um, wrote the book because we wanted it to be around in 100 years. And so that was the frame. It was like, it has to be, it has to work now. And the easiest way to know if it's going to work in 100 years is, does it work 100 years ago? Could someone 100 years ago read this book and it still help them advertise better? Could someone read this book 100 years ago and help them make an offer that more people say yes to? If the answer is yes, then we pass that litmus test. And that's actually really hard. It's a very simple sentence to say, very hard to do, especially when you're talking about media, content, platforms, like all of these different things. Um, and so I think it's having uh, an exceptionally high bar for what you, what you want to do and having been rewarded in the past, like if this had been my first book, it wouldn't have been as good, but offers was my first book. And I wrote offers in one fifth of the time as it took me to write leads. Because you didn't hold yourself to as high of a standard because you knew what better looked like. I'd never been rewarded for writing a book before. And so once I was rewarded, the amount of time I'm willing to put towards something to get rewarded again extends. So it's like intermittent reinforcement from a behavior's perspective, like that's how you get addicted to the slot machine, whatever. It's like you reward the first time immediately. The next time you reward in 30 seconds. The next time, humans have a, have a longer attribution than dogs do, just for context. Um, but you can continue to extend reinforcement until eventually you can eliminate it and the, and the behavior will persist, which is kind of cool. Talk to me about leverage. I think that's an important part of this puzzle. So yeah. there's a couple moments in your story around leverage. Um, one is is the guy that told you, hey, you shouldn't be in the gym business. Yeah. You should be teaching people how to do this. Yeah. Uh, and then the other moment, at least for me yeah. on the outside, um, was when you realized, I'm not going to help these guys launch their businesses, so I'm going to sell them the course that I put together. Yeah. Um, What's the, what is leverage? Why does it matter? And how do people get some? Okay. So first off, just for the, just for the audience, um, it was much closer to a franchise than a course. Uh, so it was, it was a licensing model. So we had, it was more, it was closer to licensing plus services than it was a course just cause it would just do a, we don't even sell courses. So like, I think that that's because there's a lot of people in that space that follow my stuff. And so they make that assumption, um, mm. which is fine. And I only set the record straight for, for clarities, um, beyond that. Um, leverage as we define it is the difference between what you put in and what you get out. And so if I, uh, and it's volume times leverage equals output. So it's how many times you do something times how much you get for each time you do it equals output. So if I do a hundred sales calls and I have no skill, then I will get fewer scale, fewer sales than somebody who does the same hundred sales calls and has much higher skill. So skills create leverage. You get more for what you put in. 
at a simple, at a, as a, at a, at a basic level. Um, but it works with anything. So if you're trying to invest, it's like, if I can invest a smaller amount of money and get a bigger return, then I have more leverage, right? The reason debt is considered leverage is because you can put 20% of the cash in and get 80% as a loan and you buy a building five times bigger than you normally could. So you get more for what you put in. Um, and so there are degrees of leverage and this is wholeheartedly taken from Naval. Um, and I'll probably have to think more about it because I haven't written the book on leverage yet. So I'm borrowing. Um, but I, I remember it as the four C's. He has different words for it, but you've got collaboration, capital, code, and content. Those are the four C's of leverage. Um, like we make this video right now, we make this podcast and we put X amount of effort in, but we get unlimited upside on it. Many millions of people can see it or one person can see it, but we get more for what we put in, the better and better we get at this. Uh, code, you can write you can write an app one time and then unlimited amount of people can use the code or use the app. Uh, collaboration is I say, okay, I will now teach 20 guys to sell and I will get 10 times the output that I had if I were selling. And so I might not take any sales calls, but make more sales than anybody else does because I have more leverage. Um, and so a big you know through line of the leads book is there's the core four, which is the first four things that I explained to you, one-on-one, one-to-many, uh, strangers and friends, or people who know you, people who don't. And then the other four, which are the four lead getters, people who let other people know on your behalf, which by their very nature have more leverage because you don't have to do it. So if you can get your customers to tell other customers about your stuff using the core four, because they also have to use that. Like a customer can only tell a customer by telling somebody through warm, warm outreach, posting content about it, running an ad, unlikely, and doing cold outreach, also unlikely. But they could do one of those four things. And that's complete. that completes the advertising cycle. So you do something to get a lead getter who then does the core four and around and around you go. So I could also make ads to get affiliates who then run ads to get customers for me. But if I uh, go and spend, let's say I spend all my time and I get 10 sales a month um, of customers, right? And let's say each customer is worth $1,000 uh, to me. Great. I'm going to cap at $10,000 a month. If I use the same effort of marketing and sales, and I sell 10 affiliates. So still, still same number of conversations, same number of humans, but I sell 10 affiliates per month. And then those affiliates each month after that, get me one customer each. Well, then the first month I'll get $10,000 because each one of those guys got me a customer, but then I'm still going to work and get another 10 affiliates next month. So then next month I'm going to have last month's 10 plus this month's 10. So now I'll have 20 new customers. And if I do it again, I have 30 new customers. And so I am using the same amount of work to get more customers than I did if I directly went through it. And so that is that is a basic example of how leverage works uh, within the context of advertising to get customers in a business. Mm. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com.
One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. So what is the what is the way that you think about um, constructing a a business or the way that you're going to structure something. So when I first asked that question about leverage, you you said something really interesting, which was, hey, I just want to point out to everybody that that yeah. was a licensing model. Yeah. It meant something to you to make a, a distinction there, yeah. which I have a feeling there's there's a little bit of Hormozy sauce in there that we would all benefit from understanding. What, what yeah. drove that decision? Why does that matter to you? You mean saying that? structuring the business to be so um this is exactly what went through my head when yeah. you said that was oh shit like he actually had a more keen moment of understanding than has come across at least to me and i've heard you tell that story multiple times um and i've heard you say oh it was a licensing thing but it never i don't know it never landed for me but this time i realized it really meant something to you um so there was a keen insight there what what was the keen insight why why do it as a licensed model instead of just saying oh this is the course go use it If we added assistance and services where we would maybe run the ads for them and we would train their sales teams, which we do, um, and we would give them the ads to run for their local area and we would help them build the landing pages to attract customers and we would uh, give them the white label, you know, meal plans, grocery list, fruit, fruit preparation, you know, instructions for their clients. If we do all of those things, then we would increase the likelihood that they would succeed and make more money. And I, can charge based on the a fraction of the value that I can produce for the majority of my customers. And so if the average, so right now gym launch, still a company still continues to grow. Um, the average uh, gym lord, which is what we call the community. Gym lord? Lord, yeah, lording. Um, the average gym lord uh, adds $200,000. I wanna say, shoot, I have to know the metric. A lot. Yeah, it adds, it, it, this is it, there we go. Uh, adds $200,000 a year. Um, to their business and 100,000 of that's profit. There, there, that's what the, the math is. So the average gym lord adds $100,000 a year in profit. I think it's a little bit more, it's like 118, whatever. And we can charge a percentage of the increased net profit that we are, help, we are able to help them generate on average. Mm. And now we have to usually charge a significant 
discount on that because half the people are going to be below the average. So for the people who are for for half of them, it's an even crazier deal. You know, they they, they pay for the license model. They don't have to spend money to test ads. We would say we already spent 50 grand in 20 markets. These are the winning ads this month and they could just run them through the system and then just collect the money on the other side. And so they get the speed and they don't have to have, they don't have to taste the test, you know, the, the, the failed ad test because we would incur that cost, but we were able to distribute that cost at scale. So no individual gym owner could spend $50,000 to test ads in all these different markets. We could, and then give it to a thousand gyms. And so, th and again, from a media perspective, uh, leverage, we could do that one time and a thousand gyms can do it at no incremental cost to us. And so it is a very profitable business. It still is a very profitable business. All right. When you had that moment, and I'm sure people know this part of your story, you had the moment where you're fucking desperate. You've yeah. lost everything twice. You're yeah. scrambling to make money and yeah. you tell the guy, I'm just going to give him a number that's high yeah. so that he doesn't bother me with it. Uh, six grand. He's like, yes. Yeah. Had you already thought of it as a license model or you do those first, like whatever, 150 grand that you made uh, with the seven people or something. I forget the exact details of the story. But it was like seven people that you'd promised to yeah. do their gym and instead you sell them this model. Yeah. Had you already thought of it in that moment as a licensed play? I had, um, I just, I think honestly, a lot of, a lot of the, the words around like what we did came from outside sources because people saw how quickly we grew and we were in a world that was direct response marketing. And so many people in that world sell courses. So they use the words that they know how to describe something. Mm. Um, but it was much closer and arguably like significantly more support than what a franchise does for a franchisee. And that's how we structured. I wanted to be, I wanted to provide more service, make them more money for a lower fee than a franchise would. And potentially this is smarter. And um, I'm really, my goal in this part of the interview is to help people map the models that you have running in your head that allow you to do the things that you do. Um, because even from my perspective, it's very unique. It's very rare. You just have a, a real ability to break things down to what I'll call the essence of the thing. Um, the Anybody listening, I will tell you right now, the biggest mistake you're going to make is what I'll call a category error. People fail to understand what the true essence of the thing is, um, which I am as guilty of as anybody. So I don't put myself um, outside of this, but have spent a lot of time trying to understand my own failings and shortcomings. Um, so as I'm hearing you tell the story, I'm thinking, okay, one, to identify the license thing is very shrewd. And so trying to map how you conceptualize the thing feels tied to me to the, the same idea of um, understanding that an individual gym cannot afford to do the market testing that you can afford to do. And therefore, if you do it, you now have a moat, you have leverage, you have a service that you can sell. That is understanding the true nature of the beast. Yeah. Do you ever stop and model the, na the nature of this thing is and yeah. then you break into constituent parts. Yeah. What does that process look like? And is it universal or yeah. is it nail salon nature of, mm -hmm. uh, gym nature of? Yeah. Um, I, I boil it down to something probably hilariously simple, uh, which is number of potential units sold times gross profit that that's, and then, and then the, you know, the tertiary pieces, what upfront or capital investments required to be able to, that would enable that, right? Like if I had, if I had to go buy a machine that could manufacture widgets that have, you know, phenomenal margins, because the value that people get from it is, you know, $10 and I can make them for 10 cents, then that's a, you know, great business. But if I can only sell it to, you know, one town in Alaska, because it's a really unique fishing tool that only works in their environment. Uh, there's elements of that that would make it an attractive business, but there's elements that won't. So it's like, it'd probably be a very small, very profitable business that could not scale. 
Um, nothing wrong with that. There's definitely a huge place in the economy for things like that. Um, but when I'm looking at opportunities, that's what I would, that is the simplest way um, of looking at it for me is number of potential units sold, uh, gross profit per unit, and then what I'll call competitive dynamics as the as the third part, which is like, if you look at you know cell phones, it's like, what does it cost them to add another cell phone to this massive network? Probably not a lot. Is it really sticky? Yes. Do people stay and pay for a long time? Yes. Okay. So there's probably a lot of gross profit to be made there. Um, and do, how many people need, you know, cell phone service a lot, right? It's like, okay, so that might be really attractive, but the competitive dynamics is that I would have to have, I don't know, a billion dollars, or I'd have to partner with somebody that would allow me to white label. So this is when you get into the competitive dynamics of like, okay, well, is there, is there value in creating a brand and wrapping on top of an existing solution and say, Hey, I might be better at marketing and sales than you. And you already have the infrastructure to deliver cell phone services to people nationwide, or maybe just in this region. Um, and I will do what I'm good at and you deliver on the back end and we structure some sort of deal where, you know, the more volume I get, the more of the economics I get to, you know, participate in. So those are kind of the, the, the big three variables that I look at if I'm just trying to analyze a business, uh, in terms of opportunity and the, and the big piece that I think a, a lot of folks will miss out on is when I say, uh, gross profit, um, I'm talking lifetime gross profit. And so that's where like, I have less care about recurring versus not recurring. Um, you know, if from, a and this gets into the push and pull of selling a business or not selling a business. But you know, if, if, uh, if a company has something that's super recurring, let's say it's a service like accounting or bookkeeping, and let's say there's really high, you know, gross profits on that. Cause we've automated a ton and we've got some, uh, offshore workers doing, you know, the remainder of it. We have really amazing margins and it's really sticky. Um, that could be a super high gross profit business. But at the same time, if you're Elon Musk and you sell everyone a Tesla, and even if everyone buys one Tesla, that might be still more gross profit than, you know, the bookkeeping services, just as a completely contrasting example. Um, and so I just look at what is the lifetime gross profit. And some of that might be better structured for recurring and some of it might be better structured for a one-time transaction. Um, and then I know I'm going into like stuff that will probably bore the audience, but if you're looking at the business as a product, then it, then it also becomes, you have two customers, you have the customer that you're selling a product to, and then you have the customer that you're going to sell a company to. Um, and most customers who are investors who are buying companies feel better <laughs> buying something that is recurring in nature, uh, because then they feel that the likelihood that they it will continue to make money in the future is higher. Even if the TAM's huge, all that stuff, it, they still feel they sleep better on it. And so you get a premium for the company. Um, and so that's, that's kind of big picture, how we think through what companies we want to invest in, uh, or at least the opportunities that we could look at. And then from a personal investing perspective is how much value can we add to that specifically? Like I probably wouldn't take on a wireless cell phone company likely, but if there's a, you know, a brick and mortar chain of services, that's like med spas or beauty or, you know, health and fit, like that's my wheelhouse. Like we know how to crush those. And so it decreases my risk because I know that even from a value add perspective, if I can five X the company, because I know how to, how to build those marketing and sales processes at scale at the unit level, then the likelihood that I don't get a tremendous return is really low. Mm. Okay. There's two things um, there. One- Sorry, that's a soliloquy. No, no, no. This is, <laughs> this is amazing. And I, I hope people are taking this as it's intended. So in fact, let me, uh, let me give people a frame of reference. This is the way that you should be thinking about what we're talking about right now, which is um, all of these things abstract so that you can think through novel problems. And so, big data sets with a few filters so you can make quick decisions on massive amounts of data. 
What do you mean by that in terms of what we're talking about right now? So if I, if I, so if, if I, so we, I get every day on my phone, I'll have a list of all the companies that have applied at acquisition.com and they'll be ranked in terms of like, this one looks the most interesting. These ones are less interesting. And here's why we didn't think they were interesting for my team. And so I will basically go pass, 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 second call and ask these things. And then they'll go and do that. Um, for me to be able to quickly make the decision, because otherwise I would, I would be inundated with the amount of data that I have to take in. I have to have filters that are faster, just LTV to CAC ratio. Like, I feel like you can boil down most businesses to what does it cost you to get a customer? What do you make from that customer over the lifetime period? That's it. Now, Tam is, you know, how many of those customers can you sell short? But like, if I just had, if I could only look at one metric in a business, that's what I would look at. Okay. So most of the entrepreneurs that are listening to this or that people that want to be an entrepreneur, no, I think they'll get that, but they're, that's not where they're going to be at in their journey. That's yeah. certainly a more advanced thing. Um, so the part that I want to yeah. bring you back to is they're going to, they're, they're going to be thinking through how do I start a business? Sure. What business do I start? Sure. Um, how do I identify the opportunity? And so there's a couple things that you were just going through that I think are really relevant. One of them is how you identify the business model. Mm -hmm. So, um, looking at a total addressable market, uh, lifetime value of the customer versus what it costs you to get them all a hundred percent, they will have to figure that out, or they're going to end up doing something dumb, chasing a small opportunity, whatever. Um, but the, all of those metrics will change based on the decision that they make around what business model to pursue. So I'll just by way of what a business yeah. model is, uh, selling courses, that's one business model. Right. Licensing a business is another business model. So people you're saying, even when they try to retell your story, they are confusing the two. So, uh, but very different when it comes yeah. to execution. There's no uh, recurring yeah, course model. Those like, just, just wildly different. Note, right? <laughs> so um, how do you process through if, if you were starting? So mm -hmm. not as when you're looking to acquire, how do you process through what is the right business model to pursue? So this is pulled from my $100 million offers book, which goes... The point of that book was to answer the question, what do I sell? And I think that a lot of people, especially when you're starting out, you're like, I need a business plan. I need a, I don't think any business I've had has had a business plan as an aside. Um, it's just, what are we going to sell and how are we going to get customers? And then from there, we build everything around it. And so- um, Isn't that a business plan? <laughs> I have- two things on my plan. <laughs> I mean, I've seen like 16 page business plans right, and I'm like, right, okay, right. all these numbers are made up. It doesn't matter. Like, do you know how to get customers? Um, and so picking the avatar, which is the customer that you want to go after, and then picking the problem that you want to solve for them. And problem you want to solve is I feel like kind of a trite term in the, in an entrepreneur space. Um, but you usually want to make their lives easier in some way. Uh, it's usually going to track down a status or it's going to track down a time, right? Like those are, those are two huge buckets that, that can, that cover a lot of stuff. And, you know, different people say there's health, wealth and, and relationships. There's, you know, there's a million bigger buckets that you can try and chunk this stuff into. But if you are starting out, so let me just get you really tactical. So we were just really clouds for a second. Let me just get you tactical. Number one, you can go and set up all of your autos of incorporation, your LLC, all that stuff online with a few clicks of a button in under 30 minutes. So you do that as step one. Step two, you take those papers to a bank and you get a bank account. Step three, you hook up a payment processor to that bank account, which is again, a series of clicks that nowadays are almost automated. Once you have those three things, you get a stranger to give you money in exchange for doing something for them. And so 
I would categorize businesses as I see them usually as you either sell products, you sell services, so physical products, something like a mug, right? You sell services, you do something that they would otherwise have to do for them. You write software that does something that a human would do for them, but because you have an auto, you have automation with code, uh, you can get them to do it, or you create things that entertain people that they want to have access to. And so those basically function into media. Again, you've got people, products, uh, code, and and, uh, and 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 content. So it actually breaks out to those four types of businesses, and. I think that most people, if you have no, like, let's say you aren't a software developer, right? And you want to start a business. Uh, the easiest ones to start are either, the easiest one to start is a service business because it only requires your time and you to learn a skill that other people can also learn, but some people just might not want to do it. And that is all you need to solve. And I remember like when I was in college and I, I spoke at uh, some universities for uh, for entrepreneurship and everyone there is always like, here's my business idea, right? And it's always like weird gidgets, uh, widgets and gizmos and like these, these never before seen businesses. And most of those will fail. Whereas like, if you want to make your first business and the big fallacy is that the first is going to be the forever business, which it won't. Most entrepreneurs have many businesses over their career and each business you learn elements that help you build a bigger and better business the next time. And so you start with something that people already buy. So it's like, you can look, what do people already buy? They already buy lawn care services. They could mow their lawn. They just choose not to. They could optimize their website for SEO. They just choose not to. They could run their own ads. They just choose not to. They could edit their own videos. They just choose not to. You could set up email, you know, autoresponders for people, but they choose not to. You could set up voicemails for businesses and, and transcribe it and send it to them because for those people, it saves them time. And so you can pick any problem you want that someone already does or already purchases, look at the solutions, and you can literally just do it the same way and have a way to get customers. That's it. Like that's, that's it. You just reach out to people that you know, one-on-one, -on -one, you reach out to strangers one-on-one, -on -one, you make content about the problem and you run ads. There's the only four things that you can do to let other people know about your stuff. So once you decide what you have to sell, you then use the core four, one of them pick, and then you let people know about it until eventually someone says, yeah, I'd be interested in you solving that problem for me. Mm. And that's how you make your first dollar. All right. Focus becomes the problem. People end up getting oh. really scattered. They want to try a bunch of different things and see what sticks. Um, how... How do you make focus work for you and not against you? I feel like focus can only work for you. Um, well, I guess lack yeah, of yeah, focus yeah, is yeah, right. the nightmare scenario <laughs> yeah. most people yeah. spend their time in. Yeah, I think it's, um, so I love showing this visual uh, and maybe we can grab it at post for this. But if you imagine a curve, right, where you go, uh, you start here a little bit above the line at uninformed optimism is that you see your buddies doing drop shipping and he's making money. And so you're like, wow, this must be amazing. I will do that too. So then you leave your current opportunity to do, or maybe you start and you start doing that. Then you move to stage two. So you go over the hump of excitement and then you go to informed pessimism. Now you're below the line. Then you're like, wow, okay, you have, there's a lot of other stuff. It's really competitive. I don't have a brand. It's hard to differentiate. You know, the cost of goods is actually continuing to rise and so are ad costs and blah, blah, blah. you start realizing the other things that you didn't know before. So you have a, a slightly more realistic view of the opportunity. Then you go to stage three, which is the value of despair, where you're like, nothing's working. I don't know what I'm doing. And this point is where everyone then jumps to uninformed optimism and the next opportunity. And they repeat, repeat 
one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, until they're eventually able to learn that they just need to stomach because every single business has shit. And when the grass is green on the other side, it's because there's lots of manure there, right? Same as yours. And then you go up to informed optimism and then you hit achievement. And so those are the five stages that I see most entrepreneurs going through and they continue to cycle the first three over and over again until they learn the lesson. So this is a skill, focus is a skill. I can train someone to do it. Um, if you're in the same environment and you're at this point where you're not sure what to do, but other people have succeeded at this thing, and then you think something else is easier that you find out about, that is a stimulus that we can then say, here's the red flashcard. Are you going to duck or are you going to get slapped? And realistically, most people just need to keep getting slapped until eventually they realize that nothing is going to be easy and they have to go through the period of not knowing what they're doing. Because that's like, that in essence is what entrepreneurship feels like is uncertainty of whether or not all of the time that you've put in is actually going to work out. And you have to get really comfortable with that, is that you won't know. Because if you were to be guaranteed the outcome that you're going to get what you want, you wouldn't want to do it to begin with because everyone would already be doing it because it's already guaranteed, which means the opportunity is gone. So the opportunity is in the uncertainty. And so as long as you can embrace that, which is why you have to some tolerance for risk as an entrepreneur, because you have to pay down your tax of ignorance, which we all have to pay down every single day for not knowing the things we should know. Um, and the only way you do, you pay down that tax is that you test and you iterate. And so you just want to get as many no's out of the way, as many failures out of the way, because you're not actually failing. You made progress. It wasn't yes or no. Did it work or not? It's how well did it work? And I think if you can make even that frame shift, you're like, okay, well, I'm reaching out to people. They're responding, but I'm not getting them on the phone. Okay, well, then you have a scripting issue. Okay, then you get them on the phone. Okay, well, they're not buying. Okay, well, then it might be an offer issue. It still might be a sales issue. Depends on why they're not buying. If they're saying, you know, it's price, it's like you might be mispriced, but you also might just be really terrible at explaining the value. And so you just continue to work your way down until eventually someone's like, yeah, that sounds good. And they read you their credit card or the phone and you're like, holy shit, this is actually happening. And you make your first dollar. And I promise you, if you make your first dollar, the second one comes a hundred times faster than the first one did. If there are many variables present, many variables must be tested. Is must be studied. Yep. Must be studied. Yeah, uh, that is certainly uh, marketing <laughs> summed up. Yeah, there no doubt uh, that people are going to have a hard time figuring that out. Um, I want to better understand. You just did a book launch for um, your most recent book, and it. I mean, you set records. It was unreal. I mean, really like blew people's minds, set a standard in, in the world of online marketing. Um, what was it about that, that, or what did you demonstrate in the way that you did that, that other people don't understand? So with each book, I wanted to demonstrate the concept of the book with the book itself. And so offers when I released it, it was a $1.99. I've now since made it free. Um, but it was $1.99 on Kindle. It had a course that went with it that many people charge $5,000 or $10,000 for. Um, and it was the subheadline of the book and offer so good people feel stupid saying no. And so I actually launched that book with a single post when I had 10,000 followers on Instagram. That's it. And every month after the first month, it continued to sell more and more copies. And to this day, it continued to sell more copies every month. And that is based on the offer being exceptional and people sharing it because they got tremendous value relative to what they paid. That was the that is the entire concept of the book. The, the core framework of that book is is called the the value equation, um, which I won't get into. But that is basically people say the word value, but how do you operationalize value, right? And so that book is about operationalizing value, making the thing that you currently sell more valuable in the perception of the customer, so they're willing to trade more of their money for it. The leads book had an entirely different core 
concept, which was the core four and the four lead getters. And that is the advertising cycle. And so it's how do you let other people know about your stuff? And so the subheadline of that book was how to get strangers to want to buy your stuff. Now, to be fair, it's not, it's not how to get strangers to buy your stuff because that's sales, but how to get them to want to buy your stuff is advertising. And so this book sits literally just between they don't know who you are and they show interest. And that's where the book ends. You get lots of leads saying, I'm interested. I'd like to find out more about your stuff. And that's all I could fit in one book to make it actually effective and operational for most people. And so since the concept of the book was to advertise and to get lots of leads, then I thought it would be appropriate to advertise and get lots of leads. And I used every method in the book, all eight for the book launch, even though I could just have made a post on my, you know, across all my social medias and probably sold plenty of books just doing that. But I wanted to show that this stuff works today and it will work in a hundred years and it worked a hundred years ago. And so I went through, I had some people that I reached out to one-on-one purposely just to check the box. I reached out to some cold people so I could do podcasts. I uh, ran ads for it, even though I didn't need to run ads. And we still got 137,000 people from ads. Uh, we had affiliates. We got 104,000 people there from affiliates. Uh, we had 27,000 affiliates promote the book. Um, we had customer referrals. People sent their friends there. So I had an incentive that if you just get 10 people to come, you'll get two bonus chapters that aren't released with the book. Uh, affiliates, uh, which is the, the, another lead getter, right? I mentioned it earlier, but, uh, affiliates, uh, we got them, uh, to, to promote the book. We got agencies who actually were the ones who ran the ads for us because we don't run ads at HoldGo because we don't transact. Um, and then, uh, employees, which is the fourth type of lead getter, which is they do the core four on your behalf for you. So we had Mosey Media, which is our internal content team, um, made all the content and the ads for that matter, uh, for the event and the book itself. And so I actually only did, uh, 17 long, uh, 17 short form pieces of content and six long form pieces of content. And then that got cut into, uh, 143 posts that we did over six weeks, uh, on top of the 2,200 posts that we were making anyways, uh, over that same period of time. And so I used all the methods in the book to demonstrate, to give proof that the book works. And so, you know, the next book, I'll try and continue that meta theme of, I have concepts in this book and I will show you that they work because I will use them to market and promote the book. Mm. The thing that I really want to make sure that people understand, and if you think I'm crazy, definitely <laughs> let me know, but I doubt you will. Um, the reason that all of that worked so well isn't what you did at the time. It's what you did for the years leading up to that moment, uh, building brand, uh, building awareness, generating massive amounts of goodwill. Um, is that like what amount of magnification did the whatever four-ish years leading up to the launch of that book play in the, the launch's success? It was everything. I mean, it was everything. Now, that being said, you could still absolutely use, like you can still use warm outreach, you can still use cold outreach, you can still like, and one of the concepts in the book is making content. And I talk about how I structure content, how we pick topics, how we pick headlines, how we format it, how we do all those things so that people can use that and make content for themselves. Um, but usually the longer you can wait um, before making any ask, and to be fair, the, I gave the book for free. And if, if you wanted to buy a physical copy, you could. That was the whole, that was, let me, let me spoil it. The surprise of the launch was that I gave everything away for free and said, if they want to buy a physical copy, you could, um, I'm, I can't wait to write the book on brand because I have a lot of thoughts on it and I can't wait to have really clearly crystallized, like un you know, beyond reproach ideas about brand. Um, but I'll give you a working teaser for, for how it works, but brand is basically teaching. 
it's associating something people know with something they don't know. And we associate these things enough that eventually I can remove this and then you'll associate water with my hand. And so if I do that enough times and I have, you know, water and, you know, coffee and whatever, then you might generalize and say the hand is a beverage thing, right? And I like thinking about it that way because what do I want people to associate me with? I want people to associate me with tremendous value. I want people to associate me with long-term goodwill. I want them to associate me with money, right? So every book's $100 million something, offers $100 million leads. Um, and so I want them to associate me with investing, which is what a lot of the stories that I talk about are companies that we've invested in and that we owned and scaled or exited. And so I, we do those things so that when you have a brand, a brand is put on something to direct someone's behavior. It is a, is a physical sign. So if you look at the you know original, the origins of the word brand, it was a brand, you put it on a cow, right? And so if you have a cow that doesn't have a brand and a cow that does have a brand, you will behave differently with a cow that has a brand on it. You're not gonna go capture it, you're not gonna go kill it. You might return it to its neighbor, its neighbor or whatever, like the brand changes your behavior. And so brands have, at least as far as I'm concerned, like these, you know, I haven't written the book yet, but um, have kind of two, two continuums. You have the strength of the brand, and then you have the positive or negative uh, inclination towards it. So away or towards. So like Nazis, for example, have a very strong brand <laughs> away for most people. Now, to be fair, there's You're also right. a subset of people who are super strong towards. There is a subset of people who- some kind of way. Right. It changes their behavior. Yes, it does. Right? And then and the inclination says towards or away to some degree. Um, you know, Donald Trump has a strong brand, right? For many no people, for, for a percentage of the population, it's, it's uh, negative and for a percentage of the population, it's, it's positive, right? And so when we think about brands that way, it's been helpful for me because you really answer the question, who and what do I want to associate myself with? And then by doing that, eventually your logo and your identity will then have a set of things that people associate with which then will change their behavior, which is why I think brands are the most valuable things that you can build because it really becomes a way to influence the behavior of the masses at scale. And so if every single person recognizes the Nike swoosh and I can take a water bottle and then put a Nike swoosh on it and triple how much I can charge for it and still get more people to buy it, then you can measure the strength of the brand by the difference in price between the commoditized version of it and the branded version of it. And that translates into tremendous profits from a, from a capitalistic perspective. And so if you're trying to build something really valuable, then you make many associations that are positive for a specific audience, because uh, I think Black Rifle Coffee, right? They're kind of like politically charged-ish, right? So Black Rifle Coffee is gonna be really positive for people who are probably right-leaning uh, in terms of their associations with that brand. It'll probably be kind of negative for the, the people who are more left-leaning. And that's okay because they're like, we can sell to half the population, whatever. And so I'm, I'm kind of uh, agnostic to the direction of it. And obviously Nazis negative on that, but like for, for most of these things, I'm just looking at what is, what is the percentage likelihood that people will adhere or comply with the requests that the brand makes of them Buy my thing, go to this thing, whatever. And so that is the, that's why you can have somebody who has a huge brand in terms of, uh, the amount of people who are aware of it, but have very low ability to direct or change behavior. And so you probably, I'm sure you know this better than anyone with Quest, you guys were one of the first ones getting into the influencer space, like way back, way back when the term influencer was a new term. Mm. Um, and you probably saw some people with million person accounts and they couldn't drive any sales. And then you saw somebody with 15,000 and crushed it 
because they had a stronger brand for a narrower audience. Even if it was just like a, a girl cop who has an audience of all girl cops, they might have lots of positive associations with that person and then be more likely to you know, comply with whatever request they have. And so I know this is a, a branding discussion, um, but the reason that I think many people wanted to come to the event is because they were rewarded in the past for consuming content, for reading my last book. And so they felt like the likelihood that I was going to reward them again at this event would be high. And I try to, like, I'll tell you a secret. I try to make many promises and keep all of them. And the more times you can make promises and keep promises, the higher the likelihood people will ascribe to you for being somebody who is predictable in a good way. If he said this will happen, this is what's going to happen. If he said it's going to be worth it, it's going to be worth it. And so that was woven in for the 24 months from the time I released offers to the time we did leads was trying to actively build up the goodwill so that um, we could set records and do something really cool and demonstrate the concepts in the book in the real world so that people could know that it would work for them too. Mm. I mean, it's incredible. It's breathtaking um, what you guys were able to do. What was a record that you broke? So the Guinness Book of World Records for a business virtual conference live was 21,000 for a business conference. So you absolutely yeah, demolished yeah. that, which is really cool. That's awesome. But I, the, I will say this as an aside, uh, I think the, 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 the fanfare about the launch will decrease soonish. And I think that the actual contents of the book is going to be the thing that, that can, that people that is that machine will start spinning because inside of the book referrals is always the one that I always try and drive the most in any business I have because it's the lowest cost to acquire customers not that it's a customer acquisition thing for me but um or sorry not a money-making thing for me <laughs> books are not the best way to make money just throw that out there um but it can create a viral effect so that you can get more customers every month without paying a cost to acquire and so the mission of acquisition.com is to make real business education accessible for everyone and so in order to do that I can't do it alone and so that is why I have to have other people help me. Yeah, uh, you're only gonna scale as much as you can get high quality people to help you, that's for sure. 